Good morning. Welcome to Sunday School. I'm glad you're here. Let's, uh, let's ask the Lord to help us in this time. Father, we thank you for another day of life. We thank you for another opportunity to meet here. We ask now that you would help us make good use of this time. We need you every day, even today. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been studying J. Gresham Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism, uh, this term in adult Sunday school here at Trinity. Uh, so far, this is our sixth class. We spent the first three classes looking at some background information and context of the book. And then the last two weeks, we've started to look into the book itself. And in those first two weeks in the book, we made it through the first chapter, which is titled Introduction. And uh, we started into the second chapter entitled Doctrine. We're going to try to finish that uh, chapter up today. Uh, Chris, Pastor Chris mentioned that he's, he's announced uh, that for the next few weeks we won't have our normal adult Sunday school. You may or may not have heard that. I hadn't heard him announce it. I, I was aware of it. So we'll be taking a break from Machen for about the next five weeks. So I think next week is uh, the missions conference. The week, pardon? The hoots, the, the mission conference. We're going to have a hoot at the mission conference. Uh, uh, the week after that is a special congregational meeting. I don't know what's in the meeting, so ask Chris or the elders, but congregational meeting the following week. Um, after that, there is one week where just I, both Chris and I are both out of town. Then uh, another one of those weeks, um, Dan Doherty from the Alquin Study Center is going to be here to present. And there's one more thing. So, But for the next five weeks, we won't be in in Machen. Uh, so hopefully we can get through at least uh, at least the overview of chapter two um, so that that can be solid in our minds and then we'll come back after uh, the little November hiatus and uh, try to work our way through the chapters on God and man, the Bible, Christ, salvation, and the church. And obviously all of those are doctrines of the church, but this chapter that we've been on dealing with doctrine is dealing with doctrine itself. What did the liberal theologians think about doctrine itself? Uh, and then in those following chapters after November and December and into January, we'll look at specific doctrines, not just the concept or the, uh, the area of doctrine itself. So as we uh, looked at Two weeks ago, uh, we went through the introductory chapter and we saw that, that what, what Machen had entitled Introduction was dealing with the difference between historic Christianity and liberal theology needing to be made clear. And then he's going to be making it clear in this chapter on doctrine. Last week, we started into this chapter on doctrine and saw that uh, the need to make the difference clear was because the liberal theology was not just something that was taking place, uh, winning ground in the seminaries and in the universities. It was actually making inroads into Sunday school 
uh, even children's Sunday school, and into the pulpits of churches all across the country. And there was uh, a movement and pressure institutionally for this theological liberalism to become the new official theology of the American Protestant churches and for all of them to become one big Protestant church that held to this liberal theology. And so because of that, because of how it was working its way into the lives of ordinary Christians, not just scholars and academics, it was important to make the difference clear. So with all of that background, five weeks of background, we start to get into what are some of the specific differences. And so this would be chapter two, um, point B, this real difference he wanted to point out as regards to what liberals and Christians, historic Christians, liberal theologians and historic Christians believed about doctrine itself was that liberalism was teaching, was believing and teaching the idea that doctrine is unimportant. It was Christian experience that matters. Over against that, Machen argued that historic Christianity said that doctrine is essential. So. Again, he had told us at the end of the first chapter and then even at the beginning of the second chapter, what he's going to do is try to make distinctions, try to contrast theological liberalism of his day with historic Christianity. So this is the first contrast. He's trying to make these contrasts crystal clear. He thinks that's a virtue. Um, and so this real clear first distinction is that liberalism was teaching and convincing people that any, any kind of doctrine, so it wasn't just that Presbyterian doctrine or Methodist doctrine or Baptist doctrine or the doctrine of some other faith, is that doctrine itself was an unimportant thing because really all doctrines, they argued, all doctrines are just... Uh, inadequate human attempts to articulate uh, the real truth which is religious experience and religious experience is shared by all people who have uh, encountered God and that experience therefore is what is normative and what is real and all doctrine all teachings and through the chapter anytime you'll see he will use the word doctrine teachings and creeds intercha almost interchangeably those things are all um, just fallible uh, inadequate human attempts to articulate human experience and they're all trying to articulate the same experience is what the liberals were saying Machen and historic Christianity, on the other hand, said that doctrine is essential. So liberals, doctrine is unimportant. Historic Christianity, doctrine is essential because real Christian experience is based on doctrine. So as we break that section down, we could say, I would say at at least three points there. Some liberals were saying at the time, that creeds are merely the changing expression of a unitary Christian experience. The Teachings of liberalism, therefore, might be as far removed as possible from the teachings of historic Christianity, and yet the two might be at bottom the same. So the liberals acknowledged, some of them, that the teachings were different, but that didn't really matter because we all love Jesus, and we're just trying to express our love for Jesus 
We just are doing it in different ways. Second point was that that liberal teaching, um, for some, was a, a dodge. They knew that that was not true, or they did not believe that was true, but it was a way to navigate the church political um, interactions of the day. Uh, they really did believe that teachings mattered because they were very upset that the historic Christians, they would have said in insulting terms, the fundamentalists were emphasizing wrong doctrines. That the doctrine you should emphasize is the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. Those are very important, and if someone didn't think that was all of it was important, the liberals were opposing them. They were trying to take over the seminaries and the denominations to make that the new teaching. So Machen says the people that argued that doctrine is unessential, some of them it was a dodge or a self-delusion. I think he would have allowed. Some of them were self-deluded because they did care. Others though, really did mean there is no universally true, objectively true set of teachings and beliefs. They really did believe all expressions are inadequate attempts at reaching toward the truth that all people of goodwill and who have encountered God are looking for. But if that was true, Machen argues, if, even though they believed that, if they followed their beliefs through to their logical conclusions, they would end up with nothing but skepticism and despair. You could know nothing. Um, if all creeds, this is Machen's words, if all creeds, again, you could substitute the word doctrines there, if all creeds are equally true, then since they're contradictory to one another, they are all equally false or at least equally uncertain. Um, and so he's saying if, if what they are teaching is true, then really we can't know anything. Um, and what you might wonder, what I always wondered when I heard this, and if we can't know anything, then why bother about getting up on Sunday morning and go and listen to somebody say stuff? Why not go fishing or sleep in or, you know, do something else? But uh, if they're all equally true, they're all equally false, or at least equally uncertain. He goes on to say, according to the Christian conception, however, a creed is not a mere expression of Christian experience, but on the contrary, it is a setting forth of those facts upon which experience is based. By facts here, he's saying it's a historic occurrence of the resurrection and that the death and resurrection was for my sins. That is the historical fact out of which my Christian experience flows. And without that, if that creed, Jesus rose again according to the scriptures, Jesus died for me, if those two creedal statements, creed just comes from the Latin word credo, I believe. I believe Jesus died for me. I believe he rose again according, if those two things aren't true, there is no Christian experience. Yes? What does mean? that the liberals' notion of truth is? So he, he mentioned several times the liberals had a variety of 
views on things like what is truth and how much some of the liberals actually were skeptics but others weren't some were probably just nice guys that like hey I, this sounds really nice this universal fatherhood of God this universal brotherhood of man and let's make the world safe for democracy and let's all you know let's give peace a chance and on and on even though it was before the Beatles but um, uh, Others were truly skeptics. They didn't believe there was truth. Um, and so if there's not truth, so I, I'm not sure if anyone else knows. I don't know that he would have said they had a consistent view about what truth was. To the extent they did, it was that truth was something experienced, not something stated. But does that help at all? I'm not sure. Yeah, so thanks. Good. All right. So that was the first contrast, and of course we could spend much more time in that section of their believing and teaching, even if they didn't necessarily believe, that the whole existence of doctrine is unimportant versus historic Christianity, which is always, even back to God's Old Testament people, has always had statements of what we believe. The second contrast then was that... Uh, the liberals were teaching that Christianity is a life, not a doctrine. Might substitute the word there, lifestyle. Um, Christianity is, is how you live, what you do, not what, you, not what old theological words you profess to believe, but it's what you do. Historic Christianity, according to Machen, on the other hand, said that Christianity is a way of life, but that way of life is founded on a message, and the message is doctrine. Again, in this section, he's just saying, he's, as he does throughout the book, he's trying to keep one debate point uh, on the table at any one time. And the one right here is, if there's not the one doctrinal statement that Jesus died for our sins and that he rose again according to the scriptures and that we can access his forgiveness by trusting him. If those doctrines aren't true, there's no Christianity. There might be something else that's fine and dandy, but it's not historic Christianity. Uh, the liberals, however, were saying, well, what really matters is kind of how we live not what we believe. So as long as we do good stuff and help people, then we're okay. Somebody could profess all sorts of different things. And Machen would say, if they're doing good stuff, it is good. So don't, don't take the wrong thing away from here. He wasn't saying that non-Christians are incapable of doing good things. He was just saying, if you're not doing it because you believe a doctrine, it's not Christianity. And he does outright say at certain places throughout the chapter, um, there's all sorts of good things that non-Christians do, but what makes it Christian is that you're propagating this message. Uh, could break this section down, into, at least I did, into five points. Um, this liberal position that Christianity is really a life. It's really about how we live, not this difficult, abstract, big word theology and doctrine. It's really about how you live. It sounds good, it sounds godly, uh, but it's radically false. That's not what happened in history. The early Christians were responding to an event. Now all three of these, we'll see it I think in, in my the, the third and last 
contrast in this section. He's going to say that in the third and last contrast that the people in the pew were, the non-academics, the non-liberals were buying some of this stuff. Some of the liberals, again, were probably just being carried along with the spirit of the age, but some were really good um, politicians and some were really good uh, rhetoricians. They knew how to get an idea forward. And the way they articulated some of these positions are, are articulating things that if you don't think through to their conclusions, you don't think through what's behind it, it will sound very, very good. And many, many regular people like us will say, what's wrong with that? And that's what Machen was trying to, to help correct. And some of these things at least I hear some of these echoes of these things in evangelical Christianity all of the time. Uh, even though I would say many of the people saying that, these things today would say, oh, but I do actually believe that the Bible is true. I do actually believe Jesus rose again. But is that what we really need to spend our time focused on? Uh, I really do believe um, that there are objective truth statements, but really, if we're not doing and then fill in the blank of whatever their hobby horse is, and there have been quite a few hobby horses in the last few years that people have been on, if we're not doing this thing, then Christianity's, you know, that's not real Christianity. Real Christianity is doing this thing, and it doesn't matter what we believe. Um, it's, it can sound very godly, uh, but it's radically false, Machen says. Radically false not just because it doesn't line up with the Westminster Confession, but radically false because it's not how Christianity began. And he says in the chapter that um, we could say perhaps they began wrong, but then what we have is not something that in history was called Christianity. Because the early Christians were not happy after Jesus died saying, well, it's too bad he died, but at least he left us his teachings. Let's go change the world for Jesus. They were distraught. They were, even his closest disciples were hanging out thinking, uh-oh, we're, we're in trouble and our guy is dead. Uh, it was only after he resurrects and after he convinces some of them that he's really resurrected that they go out and change the world. Uh, it wasn't that, oh wow, he gave us the Sermon on the Mount and so that's great, he's our great teacher and prophet. And that was very much what the liberals, liberal theologians at the time were saying was, we have the Sermon on the Mount, we have the Golden Rule, Jesus taught us these things, let's do them. That's the real essence of Christianity. Now though that Sermon on the Mount is very important, the Golden Rule is very important, but I've not met anybody that does any of them, uh, any parts of the Sermon on the Mount and the Golden Rule perfectly. And neither have you, even if you think you have. We've never met anybody that does. All you find if that's the way to Christianity is despair. We'll not succeed at following his teaching perfectly. We need somebody who has, which he had. So while it sounds very godly to say that Christianity is a life, not a doctrine, it's not what happened. The liberals at the time, and we don't have time to go into it today. If it's of interest, we could consider coming back to it. But we're arguing that, that some of them, that the Apostle Paul taught more in line with what the liberals were teaching. That 
the, that Paul didn't uh, focus so much on doctrine. Now, Machen says not all of the liberals did this, which is understandable because if you read the book of Romans, it's pretty hard to say he wasn't about doctrine. So this wasn't their main um, their main point, but it was a point. In fact, if you're interested in this, Machen wrote an entire an additional book, actually wrote it before this book, on the theology of Paul, showing how what the liberals were saying about Paul was not... Um, was not true. I can't remember the title of the book, but if you just look up Machen and Paul, you'll, you'll find the book. Um, again, in this chapter, he goes to great lengths showing how what they're, what they're saying about Paul is not true, that Paul actually did teach that Christianity was a life based on a doctrine. They were then also the liberals saying that the early church so maybe not Paul, but after Paul, the early church, the early Christians, the primitive church, uh, was about this thing about it's a life. Again, this is something that, depending how old you are, you may have heard repeatedly, even in the evangelical church, um, emphasis on they used to be called the people of the way. And these are true statements, right? That, that, that is true, that they were the people of the way was one of the ways they were referred to and they had all things in common, and no one in their midst uh, went hungry, which was true, and a good thing for us to seek to emulate. But what Machen points out was, but why was that true? It was true because they thought, Jesus died for me. Not just because they thought, wow, some guy taught some good stuff about helping people, and we're going to now help people should be obvious to everyone. There have been plenty of people back then already, and there's plenty today that teach help other people. That Jesus' teaching to help other people was not unique in, in the history of humanity. Uh, it was, it was, it's a part of quite a few religions to, to help others. Jesus actually articulated these um, ethical truths in some ways that were actually m more intense than other religions, hence the leading to despair. So for example, often people talk about the golden rule. In other faith traditions, it was don't do unto others as you don't want them to do unto you. Jesus makes it harder. Do to others what you'd have them do to you. It's not enough just to leave them alone. It, you have to actually help them. It's not enough just not to kill them. You need to help keep them alive. Right? And um, uh, even some of the things that modern day people tend to think from the Old Testament that were harsh were actually um, less harsh than that around them. So the teaching of, you know, an eye for an eye sounds to modern people because they don't know any religions as something very harsh. But an eye for an eye was better than a life for an eye. Right? There was some, there was restrictions here based on who Jesus was, but nobody can keep any of them perfectly, especially based on the Sermon on the Mount, especially based on Jesus' teaching. It's not enough just not to murder. You shouldn't hate. It's not enough not to steal. You shouldn't envy and covet. It's not enough not to commit adultery. You shouldn't lust. Um, now, you say, well, is Jesus trying to cause despair? Well, sort of. Despair that pushes us to him. The reliever of the despair. So the early church 
Machen argues, did not teach this because there would have been no early church if there wasn't the message. And then Jesus himself, they claim, taught this. Again, referencing the Sermon on the Mount, things I've already mentioned. Um, Machen points out, which I don't have any quotes on this in here, happy to discuss it, but the main reason that this uh, isn't true, at least what I took away is the main reason is Jesus viewed himself as the Messiah. Jesus saw himself as God. Now, this was being debated by the liberals at the time, or challenged by the liberals at the time. And Machen, if you haven't read the book, this is where, go get the book, go read the book. Um, it's, or go read the Gospels and Acts. Um, Jesus repeatedly conceives of himself as, and presents himself as, God, as the Son of God, as we've been hearing even in the sermons recently, the Son of God, the Son of Man. Uh, he, and if someone presents themselves as God when they're not, why would we listen to their ethical teachings? Right? Uh, so I believe Machen calls it in the book his messianic conception. He conceives of himself as the Messiah. So if he's not the Messiah, if he's just a good teacher, if he's just a rabbi, he's just a good prophet, he's just an ethical teacher, but not God, he's not very good because he's either liar or a kook, right? And um, so the, the teachings of Jesus only should be considered, Machen says, similar to other great teachers in the past uh, if Jesus is who he says he was and and he goes to great lengths at the book to point out how this idea that Jesus didn't see him and this view is still held by by many contemporary um, liberal theologians uh, that Jesus didn't see himself as God but if you read through the the New Testament and you see how he refers to himself and you see what he did and Machen does a good job of uh, pointing this out. Some of them, for example, are things even in the Sermon on the Mount itself. Jesus repeatedly says, you have heard it said, or you've heard it taught, but I say to you, well, who the heck are you? Right? And we say, oh, ancient people wouldn't think that way. Yes, the, the Jewish people absolutely would have thought that way. You've heard it said is from the Bible, the Old Testament, their Bible. And he's saying, but I tell you, Right? He, that, and that's just one of several examples in the book where he conceives of himself on par with God, on par with God's word. He did not conceive of himself as just an ethical teacher. Um, doing this, viewing his work as just ethical work only brings despair because the ethic he taught is impossible to attain. Machen's words here, about the early stages of this movement, definite historical information has been preserved in the epistles of Paul, which are regarded by all serious historians, believing and unbelieving, all serious historians as genuine products of the first Christian generation. In other words, whether you agree with Paul or not, whether Paul is right or not, any his, serious historian has to acknowledge that what Paul was writing was what the first generation of Christians 
were believing and what he was teaching. He, it was a product of Jesus' ministry, Jesus' work on life and the people who walked with him. And if any one fact is clear on the basis of this evidence, it is that the Christian movement at its inception was not just a way of life in the modern sense, but a way of life founded on a message. It was based not upon mere feeling, because you have some warm, fuzzy feelings about God. It was not based on a mere feeling, not upon a mere program of work. Oh, we're going to do stuff. But upon an account of facts. In other words, it was based upon doctrine. The words, he loved me and gave himself for me, are in historical form. We're saying he did this. That's in historical form. They're not... I, it's good to be loved, right? That would be in non-historical form. Love is good. That, that's not historical. That's just a, a truth claim or an aspiration. But this is a historical form. He loved me and gave himself for me are in historical form. They constitute an account of something that happened. And they add to the fact the meaning of the fact. So he's giving here now his definition of what doctrine is. The description of some truth or some historical occurrence and its meaning. And this is important for the, his next point. Uh, but they add to the fact the meaning of the fact. They contain in essence the whole profound theology of redemption through the blood of Christ. Christian doctrine lies at the very root of faith. That leads to the third contrast, last major contrast in this chapter, and that is that liberalism claimed that doctrine, focusing on doctrine, leads to dead orthodoxy, whereas Christianity believes that true doctrine is pulsating with life in every word. And perhaps should say what he was arguing is that people who we could have called liberals, so the liberal theologians and the Christians who were following the or the people who were following the liberal theologians of the day would have claimed doctrine leads to dead orthodoxy. Focusing on teaching doctrine leads to just stale, dead repetition of creedal words. And the historic Christians would have said, no, uh, when I read doctrine, when I read doctrine, it's pulsating with life in every word. Uh, three subpoints to that, and this is what I mentioned earlier. Even non-liberals in the pew fall for this claim. They fell for it back then, and in my opinion, they fall for it today. We don't want dead orthodoxy. And again, this is posing, as I mentioned, I think it was last week or the week before, this false dilemma that you have, you know, living reality you know, or living experience and dead orthodoxy. Well, that's not the only choices. You could have living orthodoxy, but they don't present that choice. And you could have bogus experience, right? But this is rhetorical ploy that works on people's emotions, especially if it's presented by someone who's a decent person, good with words. Um, it, it's easy to point like, wouldn't you rather be alive than dead? And the orthodoxy is dead. Well, 
someone should stand up and say, although maybe it's impolite, but like, but what if it's alive, right? What, what if that orthodoxy is alive? You're not giving me all of the choices. Should we oppose dead orthodoxy? Yeah, we should oppose death, right? So anything dead's not good. Dead orthodoxy's not good, right? Dead experience isn't good. Dead's not good, right? Living is good. Um, and uh, people back then fell for it. Liberals embraced it. And I think people today, even in evangelical and confessional churches, if they're not careful, uh, fall for this. Um, people tend to think that it's merely a call to return to the simpler faith of the New Testament. That one was popular when I was younger. I don't, it may still be. I don't, I don't know. Um, the interesting thing when people talk about the simpler faith of the New Testament, and let's get back to the early church. Have they ever read about the early church? Like in like Corinthians and stuff is a mess, right? The early church, we have people sleeping with their stepmoms and people hogging all the food at communion. Like the, the, this idea that the early church was this like second Eden um, is uh, not paying attention. And uh, it's a not paying attention though because the rhetoric tends to work. And now, were there things of the early church that were preferable to things of the later church? Uh, of course. Um, but the idea that somehow the early church is the perfect role model, well, if the early church was the perfect role model, we wouldn't have most of the epistles, right? Most of the epistles were written to correct problems in the early church. Now, I'll acknowledge some people, sincere, honest, wise people would say, oh, when I'm talking about getting back to the early church, I mean the teachings in the epistles. Well, then, of course, we would agree, right? The, the, the Bible, the inspired teaching of the epistles, the inspired teaching, uh, <laughs> the written down word of God, written down by the early church, yes, that is preferable to anything uh, of the contemporary church. But the idea that because they had the apostles with them, that the early church in its day-to-day -day actions had no problems is not paying attention to those epistles themselves. But it, this has persuasive ability because it sounds like a call to the time when people just followed Jesus. They didn't have to complicate it with creeds and confessions. Again, even that... The creeds and confessions were because they were complicating things. There were things being, uh, there were heresies, we theologians call them, cropping up and they had to figure out how to respond to them. Is this guy named Arius right or not right? right. Um, is Jesus really God or does he just look like God? Is Jesus really a man? They had to sort this stuff out because early church people were confusing these things. So even though it sounds like it's a call to return to a simpler faith, uh, an attack on the creeds and confessions is at root an attack on the New Testament and our Lord. Second point was that liberalism, this is, these are Machen's words, liberalism is in the imperative mood and Christianity is in the indicative. Um, imperative mood is the, to command. That, so Christianity is to say, you must. You must feed the poor. That's imperative mood. 
indicative mood are statements of fact. Um, Jesus loves me. I am loved, I guess, right? So it's statements of being um, versus statements of command. Um, liberalism appeals to man's will. This is just restating the point. Christianity announces a gracious act of God. I have been saved, not I must um, do things. And we'll get to some clarifications of this because people should right away be thinking, but wait, when we're saved, don't we do different things? Yes, we do, but it's what's the order of things. Andy, you had your hand up. <clears throat> you kind of mentioned this a little bit ago, but with these different points that the liberals make, and I think it's generally true then, it's generally true now too, that liberals are better marketers than the uh, Orthodox Christians. <laughs> they, uh, they come out, we're for mm-hmm. love, mm-hmm. we're for compassion. We're for toleration. That puts the the uh, Christians on the defensive. They come across as curmudgeonly ivory tower types who want to nitpick about fine points of doctrine uh, as if they are against love or compassion. And, and so rather than saying what they're for, they end up, you know saying what they're against. And mm-hmm. it's usually easier to appeal to people by talking about what you're for and what you're against. All of that. So yeah. I think it's still true. They're better marketers. Yeah. Well, many of them are better marketers. We've got some good marketers, too. But yeah. <laughs> um, Yes. Uh, I think that what they do that's hard to combat is the imprecision and the vagueness and the equivocation is um, allows certain, a certain um, feel-good kind of approach that that those who think doctrine is important cannot um, outmarket. I mean, it's like, you must say who Jesus is. You can't just have him be whoever you want him to be. There is kind of a, not kind of, a, that's how we talk modernly. There is an antithesis. There is an either or. Jesus is who he said he was, or he is not. And if he is, what are you going to do about it? And if he's not, what are you going to do about it? But if you could just say, isn't it grand that there's wonderful people? Like, well, sure. Like, well, how am I going to argue with that? So I, I do think there's truth to your point that um, whether we call it marketers or strategists, they've oft, all, often, and I think if you study church history back far enough, it's often the case that the people who were able to... Uh, create movements that caused challenges in the church were winsome, talented uh, people. Um, They were people often who had big fault. Well, even in the New Testament itself, um, some of the people who were um, seeking to get who were who were resentful of the glory that Paul was amassing and they were seeking to get it. Some of them were were talented people. Um, And so it, it is the case that uh, that they often are. But it's also, I think, the case in the part that even if we're very good at what we do, I'm not sure there's any way to overcome it because I think it comes from, from the nature of sin, from Satan himself, right? Is like this is, Satan was a great marketer to Eve, right? Like, um, did God really say that, you know? And uh, doesn't it look good? God just doesn't want this for you. It appeals to our desire for autonomy, our desire uh, to, 
to make reality what we want it to be, um, even though it will will condemn us. So that's great. To this point, Machen says on page 46, after listening to modern tirades against the great creeds of the church, one receives rather a shock when one turns to the Westminster Confession, for example, or to that tenderest and most theological of books, The Pilgrim's Progress of John Bunyan, and discovers that in doing so, one has turned from shallow modern phrases to a dead orthodoxy. He's saying this sarcastically now. One has turned from shallow modern phrases of the liberals to a quote-unquote dead orthodoxy that's pulsating with life in every word. In such orthodoxy, there is life enough to set the whole world aglow with Christian love. The liberal preacher is really rejecting the whole basis of Christianity, which is a religion founded not on aspirations, but on facts. Here is found the most fundamental difference between liberalism and Christianity. Liberalism is altogether in the imperative mood, while Christianity begins with a triumphant indicative. Liberalism appeals to man's will, while Christianity announces first a gracious act of God. Um, back to this one. Any of you ever have this experience he's talking about? I've had it repeatedly in my life. You're, you're told that, oh, this stuff is all very stuffy. It's too hard to read. And then you go and read it and think, man, that's good. That's really good. Even the Westminster Confession itself, um, if you're more into fiction and allegory, read Bunyan instead of, and Bunyan was no Presbyterian, so this isn't a denominational um, uh, advertisement here. I'm not doing marketing. But you, you read these, um, number one, it's way shorter than you think it is, especially if you don't read one with footnotes and stuff. It's not very long. And man, it's pretty clear. I guess, and I grew up reading the King James Bible, so maybe their old language isn't too hard for me. But, like, find, I don't know, is anybody know? Is there, like, a modern English version of the Westminster Confession? Yeah, get that and read it. Right? <laughs> and it's good. Even if you disagree with it, it's good. You'll know what you're disagreeing with. Yeah. C.S. Lewis had that experience. He talked lots about uh, comparing modern devotional works to actual deep you know, thick theology books. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes the most devotional books have been sitting over a really tough bit of theology. Yes, I remember that. I, don't, I remember where he said that, but it, that, that is a good point. Now, in case you're in here and you're thinking, yeah, but that's C.S. Lewis. Um, yeah, that is C.S. Lewis. So, like, um, I'm not worthy to untie his shoes, right? And, and don't have a an ounce of his intellect. And some of you might be thinking, yeah, but Keith, you can read that. I'm not you. Um, we have to allow that do, different people do have different um, interests, abilities, patience levels. So if you read it and you don't think it's easy, don't, like, don't beat yourself up. Uh, that's, that's not the point here. The point is don't assume and I know in this crowd, I'm sure no one is assuming. But as you talk to people, make sure they don't assume that reading this stuff is just because we want to be 
snobby, egg-headed, intellectual, cold, dry bones, doctrine robots. Like that. Now, there's a reason people think that, because there are some of those around, right? So um, don't be that. Um, but often, at least for many of us, if we're wired a certain way, um, yes, I mean, Personally, C.S. Lewis himself would be an example for me. Lewis and Schaefer, um, many, many people would say, oh, it's, it's too hard. How do you read this? And they'd show me what they're reading. I'm like, how do you read that? Like, um, like it might be easy words, might be second grade reading level, but what are you getting out of it? What's the point? Like, we all do know we should, you know, follow Jesus. We all know we should pray. It's the problems that we need answers to, at least if you're wired a certain way. Like, okay, but what do I do with this problem? How do I solve this question? And it's amazing how in short order um, the confession will do that. And it's, again, not advertising. I guess I am advertising for it, but it's not the only thing that will do this. Bunyan will do this. Lewis will do this. Schaefer will do this. And, and many others that are even quote-unquote easier, but the idea that this truth is what brings this feeling of death uh, is, is not true. We should ask ourselves, why do people think it's true? And there is, Machen does talk about the fact that we can focus on doctrine in such a way where it's just talking about the facts. Well, here's what Calvin said about regeneration. And here's what Calvin said about the Ordo Salutis. And here's what Luther differed with Zwingli on this. And it's just facts. Now, some of us think those facts are interesting. But do the facts make any difference in your life? So that's what Machen is saying. If we talk about doctrine narrowly defined, he'll call it, narrowly defined meaning as just the information, yes, it is. it will lead to death. But if you're, if you're defining doctrine broadly, which is what he's doing, which is the facts and their meaning, that's where the life comes from. Here's the truth. Here's what the truth means. Go on and live that. But if you do it the other way around, live it, and that will generate the doctrine. He said, that might be nice, but it's not Christianity. Again, remember the distinction he's making. Hey, if you can... If you think you can live a wonderful, good, um, blessing to other people life without Jesus, I'm not going to tell you not to do that. That's just not Christianity. That's something else. So we've got those three distinctions. Liberalism says doctrine as a concept is unimportant. Christianity says it's essential. Liberalism says that Christianity is a life not a doctrine. Christianity says it's a life based on doctrine. And then liberalism says doctrine leads to dead orthodoxy, and Christianity says doctrine leads to life. Um, and so, wow, if doctrine's that important, if everything flows from doctrine, and you're hearing this from a hardcore Presbyterian guy, right? A hardcore, like, Westminster Confession got it right kind of guy, does that mean everybody else is our enemy or is his enemy, right? Um, and he wants to be real clear. Again, the guy likes to be clear. 
which I don't know why that's not good, but I like, I like that he's clear, that a, that a writer's clear. He wants to be clear, wants to tell us what he doesn't mean. He completely means those three distinctions, um, but what does he not mean? First of all, he does not mean that as long as one's doctrine is sound, it makes no difference about life. So he's not here saying, get your doctrine right, pass the theology exam, and that's all that matters. You can live like hell, you can hate everybody, you can steal, you can rape, you can do whatever you want, but you passed your theology exam. He's saying, no, true doctrine will change your life if you truly believe it. And in it, he does spend some time, to personally most helpful to me is the concept of trust. Um, Growing up, it was often, hey, it's not enough just to believe with your head. You have to believe with your heart. I could never figure out what that meant, right? But the concept of trust helped me figure this out. Because I, I believe or I don't believe. What, like, how do I believe with a different organ, right? And um, so that's in case you thought I was smart. It shows you I was not. But, um, uh, but this concept of trust... It helped clarify it for me. And Machen spent some time, before I read Machen, Machen spent some time clarifying this. Trust implies a relationship. It implies that you believe the other person in the relationship. You believe that they're going to do what they say they're going to do, and they have the power to do what they say they're going to do. And that, so you could make the statement, I believe what was trying to be taught by this believe with your heart, not just your head, is that to say, uh, Jesus is the Son of God. You can say that. Say, Jesus died on the cross. You can say that. Jesus rose on the third day. You can say that. Satan and all the demons would say all of that. They would all pass. They really believe all of that. They really believe Jesus is God. They really believe Jesus died. They really believe Jesus rose again. And they hate it. The difference is, do you love it and do you trust it? Right? And if you by God's grace, are able to love that and trust that, it will then flow out into your life. But if you get that backwards, it leads again to nothing but despair. So he's not saying here, memorize the Westminster Confession and it doesn't matter how you live. That's not what he's saying. Second of all, he's not arguing that all points of doctrine are equally important. And then he goes through five doctrinal, some we might think were very minor doctrinal differences, and some even he would say are significant uh, doctrinal differences. But he says none of these differences rise to the level of the difference between historic Christianity and theological liberalism. None of these deserve for us to say that's not Christianity. Even though several of these he actually thinks deserve quite a bit of correction and he was not willing to cooperate uh, in mutual endeavors with people in various ones of these groups and sought to change them. And I'll run through them quickly. Uh, the first what that he talks about was what he calls the order of events in connection with the Lord's return. So again, if you remember from when we talked about at the beginning um, in the context, one of the reasons he didn't like to be called a fundamentalist, the fundamentalists were largely uh, equated with, identified with um, 
the dispensational premillennial um, view of the end times. And Machen disagreed with that view. So even though he strongly disagreed with that view, um, some of them were making that a, a test of fellowship. That this was significant enough that if you didn't believe this, um, you weren't really a Christian. In fact, often what was happening, and this happens, and this type of thing happens still today, uh, there were people in those groups that would have said things like, that people like Machen and his friends, oh, they must be liberals because they won't believe what we believe about premillennial eschatology. Um, why would they say that? Well, because the only other people they knew that didn't believe in premillennial eschatology were liberals. And so, well, if somebody doesn't believe one thing that I believe, they must agree with my enemy and everything else. Um, that happens a lot today. It's not, I don't think it's helpful. It's not tr honest. It's not, uh, I guess that's, that's all we could say. It's not helpful or honest. It's not honest or helpful um, to do that. Um, but Machen here is saying he disagreed with that view, but he did not think that view was something that Christians needed to separate over. He was willing to make common cause with them, even though he didn't like the term fundamentalist because of that. Uh, he was willing to be called a fundamentalist. He would pick them over liberal theology because he thought they were Christians. I mean, this is to put it to its simplest form. They are Christians. Liberal theology is not Christianity. Right. Next one was the mode and efficacy of the sacraments. And this one he was talking more about um, Anglicans, I believe, and Episcopalians. Um, than about fundamentalists, so there is a difference there. He could have been also, I think in the book he only references um, Episcopalians, but it would also apply to Lutherans. So the, the Presbyterians and Reformed had different views of what happens in baptism and um, the Lord's Supper. And uh, Anglicans have different views. Anglicans have a variety of views, Episcopalians. Episcopalians is American Anglicans, right? So the Anglicans, um, they couldn't be called Anglicans because we're not English anymore, right? And king, we're not under the king. But they have the same church government and the same um, theological standards um, historically. Uh, their view of church leadership is different from the Presbyterians, right? So their, their view of bishops, leadership of the church by bishops, top-down um, uh, leadership by biscops, hence the name Episcopalian, episkopos meaning bishop versus Presbyterian, presbyteros meaning presbyter or elder, um, uh, was not shared by the Presbyterian. So even though he disagreed with Machen and the confession disagrees with the Anglican form of church government of the bishops, and it disagrees with the Lutheran view of the communion and the Lord's Supper. Actually, I've just conflated my point two and three there together. So. We're farther along than we thought. But uh, anyway, the sacraments and the nature and prerogatives of Christian ministry, those are talking about here the Lutherans and the Episcopalians and others. He would have differed with the Congregationalists on church government as well. But what he mentions in the book is uh, the Episcopalians. He's saying even though there's a difference there, 
what he appreciated, this is another place where I hear echoes of, of Schaefer, Francis Schaefer, um, that because they think it's important, it's a good thing that they don't act like it's not important. Right? These differences, if we believe them, we need to live them out. We need to hold them. We need to not pretend that we think they're unimportant. Nevertheless, he would so, and he did think these were important. It, if I, and I never met the man. I don't know what his personality was like, but based on his writing and his work, whatever his personality was, if we said, what do you think of the Lutheran's view of the sacraments? He would say, it's wrong. What do you think of the Anglican's view of the bishopry, of the, the episcopos? It's wrong. Right? He would have said straight up, it's wrong. But it's not so wrong that they're not my brothers in Christ. It's not so wrong they're not Christians. And, again, I don't know his personality, but I think he would even say, and I may someday find out I'm wrong, but what I know for sure is we're not all right, because we all say something different. Right? So, at minimum, we have to say, we're all saying something different, this is one we don't have time to go into today, but that does come up regularly. I was recently asked about it at another meeting of, well, isn't it a scandal that there are these differences? And Machen does address this. Yeah, there's a, the scandal is that some of us are wrong. The scandal isn't that we don't ignore the differences, right? The scandal is that some of us are wrong. Now, obviously, we don't think we're wrong. If we thought we we're wrong, we'd change our mind. Right? So whenever you believe something, you think you're right. Unless you're a liar, unless you're a hypocrite, right? But even then, you're not believing it. You're pretending to believe it. If you believe it, you think it's right. And you try to live that out. If you find out you're wrong, you should change your mind. The scandal is pretending that that difference isn't there. So we've got the order of events in connection with the Lord's return, the sacraments, church government, Soteriology, views on how are people saved, um, who is grace applied to, who is it offered to. That's, we'll leave that to the elders for a whole session on that. But you're at a Presbyterian church, so you should know, like, and Machen was Presbyterian, so he would have said Calvin was right and um, Arminius was wrong, right? Nevertheless, he was able to cooperate with Arminians, right? Not Armenians, like I used to say when I was a kid. Not people from Armenia, but people who followed Arminius versus people who followed Calvin, um, their teaching. And then last, surprisingly to me, even says Roman Catholicism. And his point here, I was surprised he made this because much of what he says about um, Liberalism, much of his critique of liberalism applying to the uh, appealing to the will and about what we do and cooperating in our salvation could equally be said about Roman Catholicism, right? Their view of salvation, he, he, he would himself say similar critiques of that they're saying we have to participate. We don't just receive a gracious act of God. We do receive a gracious act of God, but must participate in it and complete that. But he, I believe, puts it in here to make the point, and he says it this clearly, Roman Catholicism is a perversion, in his opinion, a perversion of 
Christianity, but liberalism is not Christianity at all. It's not even a perversion of Christianity. It's not related to Christianity. Because, why? Doesn't believe the Bible is inerrant, doesn't believe that Jesus is God the same way that Christians do. And regardless of your personal view of the Roman Catholic Church, they do believe Jesus is God and man. They do believe in the Trinity. They do believe the Bible is God's word. And this is, these are the points he's making. These guys agree with us on a whole host of things, but uh, not on salvation. And we don't have to, uh, we don't have to um, break fellowship with them because uh, in all senses, because of these differences. I don't believe he would have cooperated with them um, on church activities with the, the Roman Catholics, but he would have said we could, we could cooperate on various things. And then finally, even though the liberals aren't Christians at all, doesn't mean we have to live in personal animosity with them. That does not mean that conservatives and liberals must live in personal animosity or go back to how he said it before, that Christians and these people following this new religion, they don't have to live in personal animosity. It does not involve any lack of sympathy on our part for those who have felt obliged by the current of the times to relinquish their confidence in the strange message of the cross. Many ties, ties of blood, of citizenship, of ethical aims, of humanitarian endeavor, unite us to those who have abandoned the gospel. We trust that those ties may never be weakened and that ultimately they may serve some purpose in the propagation of the Christian faith. But Christian service consists primarily in the propagation of a message and specifically Christian fellowship exists only between those to whom the message has become the very basis of all life. And we have to end. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. We ask that you would use it to point us to you and to your word, and that you would continue to change us into your image. In Jesus' name, amen.